Today we're continuing the series that we've called Fixed and Free, where we examine, examine theology in our Old and New Testament that we see as more tabernacle or free-based and that which is more temple or fixed-based, all of which is represented in our beloved United Methodist Church. Today we're going to read two passages, but I want to read an abbreviated passage from the book of Romans, the 14th chapter. And I would encourage you to read that entire 14th chapter sometime today. But it sets the tone, I believe, for what we are talking about today in Acts and what we're dealing with today in our church and in our world. I want to read from Romans, the 14th chapter. I want to read the fourth verse. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall. We do not live to ourselves and we do not die to ourselves if we live or if we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, guess what? We're the Lord's. You know, one of the things that I love about the United Methodist Church is that we are a people not only of tabernacle and temple, but we're a people of a big tent. And under this tent, there are many theological persuasions. And we're all here together. We don't all think alike. Uh, theologically and politically and socially, we're all eclectic and different. And it is only God who could bring us together. You know, under this big tent... We have a broad theological definition of United Methodist people. And under this tent, we are those who recognize that in our midst are, are ones we would call traditionalists who hold a covenant um, view that's based on the book of discipline. And our understanding of the book of discipline is centering our covenant together as a covenant people. And then there are those who might, we might call progressives. And the progressives are those who see justice or hold justice as that important aspect of us living into our salvation. And justice is so important as we understand ourselves as Methodists and about social holiness and living in the world in such a way that makes a difference, that changes it, that transforms the world, this adherence to justice. And then there are those centrists who hold that unity is a gift and they love our diversity and our differences and theological opinions and aren't looking for us to all be the same, but all be under the same unifying tent. Now, of these three persuasions, there are those who are, are, who are on the far extremes, okay? Still under the tent. But at this time in, in our history as a United Methodist Church, we are dealing with those who are on the far left, who are saying that if we don't change the discipline, and if the discipline does not become more just in its language and its approach, then we may have to go find us another tent. And there are those on the far right who are saying if we do change the discipline or if our bishops or those in authority don't continue to enforce the discipline, then we may find us another tent. And the centrists, whether you may think them to be naive or what, are, are there under the tent saying, can't we, we all find our mission together and accept the differences that we've had forever and be under the same 
tent? And you may ask, is there anything fixed in United Methodism? Is there a core? Is there a center? And I dare say the answer to that is yes. Kenan Pickett um, uh, will be coming before the Board of Ordained Ministry, as will Sarah Luganbill and J.B., uh, Jonathan Bryant. Um, and shortly after them, Scott and Reagan will be coming next month before the Board of Ordained Ministry. I've been on the Board of Ordained Ministry for several years, and I'm in charge of the theology room. And I can assure you we will hear varying theological beliefs that come before that room. It's our charge to push these candidates and to make sure they're, they're, they're thinking in a way that, um, that is consistent. And, and also that there is a centering aspect of who they are as United Methodists. So I would say that of these 20 candidates that will come before us, and I'm really tired of reading papers, but... They will defend their papers. And then we will no doubt ask a question. And that question is, what are our doctrinal standards? And how will you teach our doctrinal standards in your congregation? And you better get it right, Scott. And to me, those doctrinal state, um, uh, statements are, are kind of like the stakes of this tent that tether this tent in place. And they are our articles of religion of the Methodist Church and the confession of faith of the Evangelical United Brethren Church. Now, we're not going to talk about all of those today, but it may be coming. And it was the, the articles and the confession that were brought together in 1968 to form out of the Evangelical United Brethren Church and the Methodist Church the what? United Methodist Church. And that 1968 conference happened right here in Dallas. Do some of you remember? And then the other doctrinal standards, Scott, take notes. Wesley's sermons and the explanatory notes upon the New Testament, Wesley's. And then what we call our general rules. And our general rules have to do with an obedience to the Ten Commandments and also to the Great Commission. And the general rules, even though they're a little bit more expansive than this, they are only three and all of the expansions under those three categories. And the general rules are these. You can take these down. This is the right answer, Scott. It is do no harm, so avoid evil of all kinds. Secondly... Do good of every possible sort as far as possible to all. And then the third one, stay in love with God. Or, more traditionally stated, practice the ordinances of God or engage in individual and communal spiritual practices. So the three, do no harm, do good. Stay in love with God. You've passed the test if you know those three. Now, I would add to this list are the stakes around the tent, the divinity of Christ, and the historic creeds that not only bring the United Methodist Church together, but those creeds connect us to the larger family of Christendom. The historic creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. 
And then in this big tent of essentials with these stakes that we've just talked about, there is a center pole that holds this tent up high enough so that there's room for all under the tent. Are you with me? And that pole is the pole of the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's with this pole of grace and these stakes related to our, um, our general rules and our articles of faith and the Wesley sermons, all of these doctrinal standards that hold this tent in place called United Methodism. It's regarding practices and the language of our discipline and the disagreements thereof that stands to bring the whole tent down and other smaller tents to form. Today we're going to read a passage that's kind of a follow-up from last week. Remember last week we talked about the vision that was given to Cornelius and the vision that was given to Peter and we talked about how those visions brought these two together at Cornelius's house and how Cornelius and everybody in the house was filled with the Holy Spirit and so Peter said if the Holy Spirit's going to baptize them then I should baptize them as, with water even though they were Gentiles were not circumcised as was the law did not carry on the dietary laws as was the law they were lawbreakers but the Holy Spirit said they're in and so we're looking today at Acts the 15th chapter with Peter's decision being what it was to baptize those Gentiles. Then they had an issue. They had to have a general conference, but they called it the Jerusalem Council. And at the Jerusalem Council, they had to come up with a conclusion. Where do we go from here? So I'd like for all of us to turn in our Bibles to Luke the 15th chapter. Excuse me, Acts, the 15th chapter, thank you. And let's turn um, to the 6th verse and we'll read that together. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Beginning with the 6th verse of the 15th chapter. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, My brothers... You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? The yoke of the law, right? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will be saved. The whole assembly kept silent. And listen to Barnabas and Paul as they told of the signs and the wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles on their missionary journeys. And after they had finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles 
to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written. After this I will return and I will rebuild a dwelling of David which has fallen. From its ruins I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore, I have reached a decision that we should not trouble these Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. Now let me just say a word about that. The Gentiles were prone to worship in the temples. And in the temples there was temple prostitution that would go on as according to the worship. And so James draws the line there. He said, you're going to have to abstain from these things. And he made it clear there were some conditions. For in every city for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You see, our big tent debate is nothing new to Christendom. From the very beginning, there was a debate. Who's in? Who's out? And the question was, what do we do with these Gentile converts to Christianity who are not circumcised, the law said you should be, and who don't keep the other 650 plus laws that we're called to keep as Jews? What are we going to do with these people who are breaking the Bible law? The question really was, do we need two tents? One for the Jewish Christians and one for the Gentile Christians. And the debate of the Jerusalem Council had one side of traditionalists who were, were afraid of losing their identity, demanding that all believers abide by the Jewish law and custom as stated in the Bible. And on the other side, was a group of progressives helmed by Paul and Barnabas who witnessed to the Holy Spirit filling these Gentiles and made a pitch that they should, be, they should not be required to be under the law. If the Holy Spirit didn't require it, then why should we? Peter, who had become somewhat of a centrist, told about how his heart was changed and he couldn't help but think of Cornelius and his experience with God giving him a vision saying, don't call unclean what or profane what I have called clean. And then we know what happened. His relationship with Cornelius, his sharing the gospel with Cornelius had not only Cornelius filled with the Holy Spirit, but also everybody in the household. So Peter baptized them. And then Peter makes this statement to the assembly. We believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
just as they will be saved. We're one and the same because of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one grace. So it's James, the wise one, who has to make the decision. And he said we need to have one tent. One tent, one baptism, one faith, so on and so forth. Some basic practices regarding abstention need to be in place. And so he put those in place. But Peter could not get Cornelius out of his mind because that relationship of what God did in the midst of all of these things changed his heart. You know, last Sunday, I asked you a question. I said, who are your Gentiles? Who are those people that you wonder if the Holy Spirit would ever fill? Who are they? Today I want to ask you, who is your Cornelius? Who is that person that you've come into relationship with that because you're in relationship with that person, everything's different and changed? Friends, I want to tell you about a relationship that I can't get out of my mind or heart, even if I wanted to. I want to say that I prayed a lot about sharing this story with you for really months, nearly two years. And I pray that you, in hearing it, will know it's coming from the heart of a pastor, not a preacher telling you what you should think or what you should believe, I'm not trying to tell you that we're going this way or that way because this church is going to stay right with what is our discipline and be obedient and obedient to our bishop and pray through this division that we have at this time. That's my commitment. But there is not enough honesty in this world. Amen? I'm so tired of hearing in this world the talk of what is false and what is fake and, 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 and you're wondering if you're getting the truth from this person or that person. And, and if the church can't be honest, then how are we going to transform the world into honesty? So I'm going to pray that you're going to hear your pastor this morning be honest. Share from my heart. There's not enough honest pulpits. There's too much pretense out there. And I dare say that there, there needs to be more listening on all of our parts to one another because I can assure you in this large tent we call Lover's Lane, isn't this a beautiful tent by the way? We're a very eclectic people. We have traditionalists and progressives on the far right and in the middle and those centrists and we're all together in this same place working it out and worshiping together, and leading people to Christ, and baptizing those who come. I want to say this morning that before General Conference in 2016, there was a wedding in Columbus, Ohio, of a United Methodist ordained elder and his partner, for nearly three decades. It was a United Methodist Church that officiated this wedding and there were 
United Methodist pastors there, and this was a same-sex wedding, and all holy hell broke loose right before general conference. As one would expect, and the man at the center of the controversy was a man named David Meredith. Now you need to know that when I went to seminary in Kansas City, Tammy and I had been married for a short time, two weeks, and then we moved to Kansas City. We'd been educated within 100 miles of the house, and we thought we needed to go north. So it was a strange place with new friends that we were making, and and you know how that goes. Everybody there was younger, and we were all pursuing our call that we believe God had on our lives to be United Methodist pastors, and we were engaged in theological study, and I had never in my life known that the tent was so large as it was in seminary. There were people who believed things, well, I don't even know if they were, well, they were kind of Christian. And David was one of my colleagues. In fact, we became fast friends because he came from a more orthodox uh, perspective, as did I. He came from the, the more um, evangelical uh, persuasion of theology, as did I. And he had this passion for social justice uh, that was Wesleyan holiness at its best, as did, did I. And so David and a few of us became real tight friends. We studied together, we socialized together, and we were right and everybody else was wrong. <laughs> and another thing about David you need to know, he was the brightest one in the class and he was the teacher's pet of all the teachers and uh, we didn't hate him for that, but he did bug us. And he always got his work in, it was always excellent. And, um, Jimmy, you're in the way here. <laughs> and um, and David started falling in love with one of our friends, Carol. Oh, it was a beautiful romance budding. I mean, they were so cute together, and we were all tickled in our little insider group that David and Carol were a thing. They were getting serious. And then David had to deal with the reality of his sexuality. And it was painful for him and for Carol. And our friends had to come around him as he, for the first time in his life, had to claim, you know, I'm a gay man. And it was painful long before it was ever freeing. And he became ordained. You know, you can be ordained if you're homosexual and not practicing. <laughs> and he became ordained. And for 35 years, I've witnessed some of the greatest ministry in western Ohio coming forth from David that anyone could witness. Churches always loved him. Those social agencies that he was the minister of, they always thrived, just as we knew they would. Because there was no one more called than David. 
So for these decades, because David's my Cornelius, I have asked myself the question, did David misunderstand God and God really didn't call him? I mean, he just thought he called him and that joy that was in his heart that came out on his face, it was coming from somewhere else but not his call from God to be a minister. Or was God just as surprised when David came out as David was? Think about that one. Do we really surprise God? Or did God know David was gay before David knew he was and called him even though or because of? Doesn't get any easier. Stay with me. I'm trying to stay with you. He met a guy named Jim. For three decades, they were in a monogamous, loving, caring relationship. How do I know? Because for 10 years, our little circle of friends in seminary, we vacationed together. We saw kids being born in our midst over those 10 years. Every year we would figure out one place we would go and we would vacation all six couples together and we had the best time remembering seminary days and laughing and joking and talking about what God was doing in our ministries and how God was changing lives. What a time. And the very last time we got together, it was in Michigan on Lake Walloon, a beautiful little lake, and David and Jim were the hosts that year. And none of the rest of the group could come for various reasons. But Tammy and I, with Zach and Emily, and David and Jim, were together for a week. That was fantastic. So for three decades, I've loved David and Jim. So, so when I got an invitation to a wedding... I knew it was controversial. I knew it broke the church law, and I wasn't comfortable with that. I've told you where I stand. But these were friends. And, and so Tammy and I decided we'll, we'll go to the wedding. So did Carol. So it was Tammy and Carol and me. We were there in the balcony of this beautiful downtown Columbus, Ohio church that was filled with 450 people. You couldn't, it was standing room only. There were 75 pastors from Ohio there. I mean, it was a statement for sure, but it was a worship service first. And what a worship service. Two choirs sang from his former congregations. And so I tell you all of this to say these matters when they come into our families and when they come into our circles of friends have the Cornelius effect. It changes the way we perceive these issues. 
They're not that black and white anymore when they're named and loved. Now I expect whatever the United Methodist Church does, it's going to be broad enough that those who have convictions over here and those who have convictions over here are going, we're going to have to find a way for us to get together with these convictions and people who serve churches like I do that are so eclectic. Now, we've got the work cut out for us, but I, I, I trust the Holy Spirit will move us in the direction that keeps us centered. I would ask you, what would you do if you were invited to that wedding? And some of you would say, I wouldn't go. And that'd be fine. It'd be so fine because we considered no for an answer. And if your convictions would have kept you from going, how right that is. There would be those of you who would have said yes quicker than we did. And that'd be okay too. Your convictions would lead you to that conclusion and how right you would be. There'd be a lot of you that would have struggled like Tammy and I did about our decision to go. But you know what? Did God ever say it was going to be easy under the tent? The bigger the tent, the harder it is. And the bigger the tent and the harder it is, the greater impact we make on a world that is so used to dividing into tents. We make a testimony in being who we are and being together and not walking out and saying, I'm done with this church because of yes, your belief. We'll go to a little tent that they all believe alike and you'll get sick of that too. We... If we get one thing out of the Jerusalem Council, it has to be this. We have to be led by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will not disappoint. Amen.